the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, I'll be discussing the challenges facing the Dublin restaurant sector following the sudden closure last week of the high-end Italian restaurant Luna. Irish Times consumer affairs correspondent Connor Pope, restaurateur Elaine Murphy and DIT lecturer Martin McAnumara, who is also the chair of the Dublin Gastronomy Symposium, join me for that. I'll also be talking to Fergal O'Rourke, managing partner of PwC in Ireland, about the debate on Ireland's corporate tax regime. But before all that, Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times is in studio for his roundup of some of the week's other stories. Peter, what have you got for us today? So the first thing I suppose it's worth talking about is that we've seen conflicting reports in respect of property this week. As you'll know, uh, you reported on what the OECD said in respect of the Irish property market. They said that the market remains vulnerable to rapid price changes and the influx of foreign investors. Uh, They could create a new sort of risk. They warned also that property price could surge again. And to some degree, that was somewhat at odds with recent CSO data, which showed a dampening, at least in, in growth. And also what was said by the IMF on Monday, uh, they suggested that the risk of a repeat of Ireland's boom-bust scenario is unlikely. Uh, But Dublin still was the outperformer among 32 advanced and emerging market economies. One of the things the OECD called for was that the property tax should rise with prices. Uh, Obviously, it's been... It's been stagnant uh, since its introduction. Since 2013, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So that was one of the suggestions. Is there any way to square the circle between the two forecasts? Is it the case uh, that the IMF maybe is looking at where we are now and the OECD is looking at, well, what might happen if there's a a big boom in credit and and driving up house prices further? Yeah, I mean, what what, what the OECD... If the OECD is suggesting that a boom in credit is, is to be worried about. Yeah. The central banks seem to have that somewhat under control at the, at the moment. And, and again, when we look at the recent CSO figures, it it's hard to see how prices could uh, rapidly rise given that the growth rate has, has fallen considerably. It's still very high, uh, uh, but but considerably down from where it was. I remember one point last year it was in excess of 12%. So it's, it's uh, down from those kind of lofty heights, still off the boom peak, of course, as well. And despite uh, rising prices, there are still investors being attracted to the market. Absolutely. Here. Now, and and you know, the, I suppose the OECD did say they were they had slight concern about these foreign investors. Perhaps they could pose risk. But one, I suppose, domestic investor, Iris Reit, confirmed uh, this morning after an Irish Times story that it's been named a preferred bidder for a portfolio of eight hundred and fifteen apartments, which are spread across the state. Yeah. So it's. The, the largest single property sale this year. And and, more than, and there was another significant deal? Yeah, this was, I suppose in terms of the price, it wasn't terribly significant, but it was that uh, uh, the McKillens sold a site in Dublin 8 to a company called The Collective. Uh, this is a co-living company and it's expected now that they're going to re- redesign that, the entire scheme. This co-living notion has arrived on these shores now and it's causing some uh, consternation after Barter Capital in Dunleary came under a bit of fire um, for a 206-bed development with something in the region of 46 apartments sharing one kitchen. So there's some concern. Um, The Minister seems quite excited about these developments. The Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, 
whether the public will uh, obviously remains to be seen. Yeah, perhaps suitable for people coming to Ireland for a month or two, but hardly suitable for somebody looking for a absolutely a long term home. They sound more like kind of apart hotels uh, th- than they do for longer term, even for a year. You know, they're they're more similar to student accommodation than they are to studio apartments. I would say. And plenty of people likely to be continuing to come to work here because the latest employment figures were remarkably strong. They were. Uh, so the number of people in employment reached a record high in the first, first quarter. The, so we haven't hit, the rate hasn't hit the record that was reached during the boom. But in terms of absolute numbers, we are now higher. Um, there was one worrying thing in there, or at least one. Uh, there was a decline of more than 8% in agricultural employment, which indicates that even before Brexit, that sector is having difficulties, or maybe that is Brexit related. Sure. Uh, so, the revised the unemployment rate also was revised to four point six percent. So, practically everybody now who wants a job has one. And while Pascal Donoghue said that full employment is welcome, he did say that it presents challenges for policy. And and in particular, he said that the government must ensure that the labour market remains flexible, so that overheating can be avoided. And clearly, skills shortages. Uh, labour shortages now appearing pretty much across the economy and, absolutely. and starting to drive up wages it would appear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, particularly in areas, uh, perhaps not agriculture, but particularly in, in areas like tourism mm. uh, and construction. And we're seeing that with, with prices prices going up as well. Sure. So obviously that, that, that... And probably in the higher ends of the tech sector as well where... Mm. Yeah, and, and that's contributing to other problems in Dublin. Sure. So that that issue of overheating is now more pertinent than it ever was. But sorry, if we just briefly hark our minds back to Christmas, the Department of Finance uh, did know that this was coming. They expected overheating somewhere uh, toward the end of the first half of this year. So. Sure, sure. Nonetheless, I think everyone was probably taken aback by the scale of yeah. the uh, the scale of the jobs increase mm. in the first quarter. Now, big corporate news from the UK today. Uh, British Steel, tell us what's happened. That's right. So, British Steel is the UK's largest steel producer. It's collapsed. Uh, it's gone in, gone into liquidation. About twenty five thousand jobs now are under threat. Uh, in a market could, that could do without this. Um, the High Court ordered the compulsory liquidation of the company, which directly employs 5,000, but there are 20,000 downstream jobs in in the supply chain. The government has said that they are open to new buyers, while the Labour Party has called for nationalisation, but the Conservatives have ruled out nationalisation at this point. So if we just look at who the owner was, it was Grable Capital. Uh, they bought it for £1 from Tata Steel, which, which would be well known. I'll just yeah. mention them again in a moment. But... Grable, who aren't well known, uh, previously owned the airline Monarch, which collapsed, and uh, and the UK government then had to rescue about 120,000 passengers, uh, and the electronics chain Comet before its collapse. So, anyway, it is continuing to trade at the moment, but I suppose EU steel has been under some pressure after Germany's ThyssenKrupp and India's uh, Tata Steel, which, which I mentioned they ditched a plan earlier this month to merge their European steel assets. So that left the, fra- the, the sector fragmented. But we also have this effect of China steel and, and China's level of production that just isn't matched here. If we look at what China has produced in the last two years, it's been more than Britain has ever produced. Uh, so it, it is fascinating. It's an industry that's in, in in trouble and adds to job losses. I know you're going to be talking about restaurants later, so it adds to job losses in the UK that they could well do without. And uh, obviously, President Trump's tariffs on steel are seen in this context of 
gross global overcapacity as well. Yeah, absolutely. And added to that as well are, are, are these climate initiatives. So UK steelmakers pay uh, significant carbon taxes. So it's a tough industry to begin with, with with uh, with, with what you just mentioned. But um, there's also changing attitudes, and, and that's obviously proved too tough for for British steel. And is there a potential any potential buyers in the wings? Not. That I'm aware of at this point, uh, Grable had asked for a loan to shore up the company's finances. That obviously didn't work out and we are where we are now. But the administrator, the the, the liquidators are going to keep trading it for the moment. uh, And the preference from the government very much is to to sell it. But the likelihood is significant numbers of jobs on the line. You'd have to think. Okay. Peter Hamilton, thank you. Thank you. OECD finance ministers will be discussing the big international move towards corporate tax reform at a meeting at the organisation's headquarters in Paris today. And the implications of this for Ireland will be front and centre at the Global Tax Policy Conference taking place in Dublin this week, organised by the Irish Tax Institute. To discuss what all this might mean for Ireland's corporate tax regime, I'm joined in studio now by Fergal O'Rourke, Managing Partner of PwC in Ireland. Fergal, run us through the genesis of this whole OECD tax process, where it came from and, and where it's heading. Well, officially it goes back to 2013 when the OECD produced a report on profit shifting and base erosion, which sounds very technical terms. But really what it reflected the fact that the the global tax system, which had grown up after the end of World War I, was now found really to be not suited to modern business. And I suppose there are three or four factors that brought it to the fore. One was austerity. And after the global financial crisis, citizens in countries were asked to share a lot of the burden. And companies probably weren't seen to be paying a proportionate share of this increased burden. It reflected the fact that, um, and again, it's a bit of a long-mouthed phrase, but disintermediarization. And by that, I mean, if you or I brought records or CDs, let's say CDs, um, back in the day in a physical medium, you looked at the back and you saw it was produced in Germany, wholesaled in Britain and retailed in Ireland. Each of those countries got a share of tax in some shape or form on profits. But with 21st century digital models, there was a cutting out of the middleman and a loss of revenue to to countries. And the whole global tax system had been built on, you pay tax if you've got a physical presence or salespeople in a country. And suddenly with the disintermediarization. There wasn't that physical presence, there wasn't that sales force, and suddenly countries were losing out on tax. In addition, another factor was uh, US companies at the time had the ability to effectively defer US tax on their foreign profits until they brought it home. And they weren't bringing it home, they were leaving it offshore. And offshore tended to be a zero tax jurisdiction where they moved their intellectual property. So a combination so of... So the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas? Or Cayman Islands, Bahamas. So, uh, they, they put a lot of profit on intellectual properties in locations where in reality there wasn't much substance. So the OECD really is looking at two, if I can call them, themes. Well, probably a third theme is transparency, making, uh, showing a lot more visibility of where companies are making their profits. But the two themes are probably really around. The first is making sure companies have their profits and their substance aligned. In other words, so when you, you say can't substance, have you mean activities, jobs, people. activities. Yeah. Yes. So not not brass plates, but correct activity. And you know there was a sense that with a lot of co- companies having intellectual property on islands, they really had no underlying substance with that. But the second thing, and it, it's a philosophical issue, is should companies pay profits tax in countries where they make sales but have no physical presence? And 
Unlike the laws of celestial physics, you know the sun will rise in the east in the morning, you know that 2 plus 2 will equal 4. Tax is a set of man-made principles and over hundreds of years we've seen everything from window taxes to uh, poll taxes to income taxes. So there's a philosophical debate which said over the last hundred years you've paid tax, profits tax, where your functions, your risks, your activities and your sales are and your sales people are. Now there's people saying, well, hang on, even if you've got no risks or functions or people or activities, if you're selling into a country, you should pay some profits tax there. And that's a philosophical debate. And that's what's going on at the moment. So if you stand back from it all, Cliff, and you say, you know, I, I take US companies because they really were the target for a lot of this. US companies with non if you look at their non-US operations, tended to have intellectual property offshore taxed at zero, an Irish sales company taxed at 12 and a half, and paying no tax in the country of sale or consumption because they didn't have enough taxable presence there. That whole uh, principles-based uh, system of global tax is really up for debate now. Yeah. So the OECD have had one go at this. Yes, We've had some changes in our tax system here. Yeah. But they've come back at it again. And at the same time, the whole US tax system has changed. So I suppose for a long time, very little happened really fundamentally on corporate tax. But now everything seems to be changing at once. Yeah. And it is ironic if the Trump tax changes had taken place in an Obama administration, in other words, before the OECD went on their uh, programme, the OECD programme would have been a lot shorter because a lot of the fundamental changes that have happened to the US tax regime are dealing with a lot of the issues that are now being discussed so for multinational. companies are now pretty much obliged to pay a minimum tax on the profits in effect, overseas. On the overseas pro- exactly. Yeah. And, and that straight away would have taken a whole leg away from the OECD mm-hmm. process. But... Um, it's, it's worth noting that when the OECD report first came out in 2013, there was an app- while Ireland wasn't mentioned specifically by name, there was an appendix at the back showing how profit shifting uh, arises. And country A, to the most uninitiated, was clearly Ireland. Yeah. You fast forward to 2018 and Pascal Santaman, who is leading the OECD programme and probably will end up being, even at this early stage, the most influential tax person of the 21st century. Pascal has called us out as a poster boy for the OECD programme. So to a certain extent, Ireland has embraced the OECD programme, partly out of necessity, but partly out of if at the end of the day, one of the key tenets of the programme is companies must put their have alignment between their profits and their substance. Well, if you look at all the US multinationals that have significant substance here, we should gain from that. We may lose a little tax because if there's profits tax now been paid in the country of sale or consumption. But net net, Ireland has proven to be a winner. And we've seen in recent times the corporate tax take has gone up significantly. And so I believe, and I've said this from 2013, and it was probably a a relatively lone voice in the wilderness back then saying this could be good for Ireland. And so far, it has proved to be good for Ireland. So it's been good for Ireland the last few years because companies have moved their intellectual property here. And that seems to have in some way boosted our our tax take. They've also expanded their activity here, here, recognising that really aligning your substance and your profits becomes key. And they've made that investment. A lot of companies have brought their IP on shore. I think actually our corporate tax take will continue to go up because there more has come on shore and due to some technical changes over the last couple of years. So I, I think our corporate tax take, certainly looking out to the next year or two, uh, will continue to rise. 
Are there dangers after that? Because, as you say, this whole OECD process is looking at fundamentally how things are taxed. There is talk of more tax being paid in the big markets like France yes. and Germany where all the or customers China, are. Or, yeah, exactly. And there's also talk of some kind of minimum corporate tax rate being, tax rate being set uh, in international, country, yes. if, if you like, which could, could perhaps threaten our 12.5% rate. Yeah, if I take the second one first, no, I don't. It's funny, you hear politicians talking about, you know, we will fight on the beaches and yeah. for the 12.5% rate. It's not really under threat the way it was when the IMF moved in and France uh, were demanding we, we, we uh, increase our rate. We'll be allowed to have 12.5%, I believe, as long as we want to have it. The idea of a minimum corporate tax is more a case of ensuring that companies selling into jurisdictions pay a minimum amount of corporation tax. And I suppose, in a way, that could be the thin end of the wedge for Ireland because we're no matter what happens, we're going to lose tax as a result of this OECD initiative because I think most countries now accept the principle of, look, notwithstanding 100 years of the way we've done it, Going forward, you have to pay some profits tax in the country of sale or consumption, even if you've got no activities there. We've accepted the principle. Now we're haggling over the price. And the extent to which profit has to be left in these countries of consumption is, in effect, a direct transfer of taxable profits from Ireland to that country. Okay. So so you have a big digital player here who currently pays o- tax only, tax in, only Ireland. in Ireland in terms of markets outside yeah. the US. Yes. Now they'll be paying some of the tax in France, Germany, Germany wherever. Exactly. And by Meek. extension, they have less, less tax profits here. declared in Ireland. Okay. Correct. Less taxable profits, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a technicality. They will pay tax here, but they get a credit for the... Far- but at the end of the day, the Irish taxpayer loses out. And I suppose, again, and, you know, sometimes I wonder, we don't say this often enough, every country is acting in its own selfish, strategic national interests. And Ireland should be no different. And, you know, um, I don't see when I see France and Germany and uh, they're all out to maximise their corporate tax take. And it is a zero sum game. If they win, we lose. And, you know, you want equity, you want fairness. Uh, I I think Minister Noonan a few years back had a phrase of uh, we want the Irish tax system to be competitive but fair. And I think that's a good place to, to pitch it. But we should always be looking out to maximise our own revenue take to pay for the services that everybody enjoys. Mm. But isn't the other side of that equation, or part of the debate as well, is clearly about where tax is paid. But part of it also comes from the fact that a lot of these companies managed to get away for such a long time with paying so little tax on the money they earned. On, on their non, correct. And, and I mean, and, but that is now, I, I suppose, two, three years ago, the debate was around a fair tax. These companies should be paying more. The debate is now a where tax. With the US changes, the, the their US companies are paying a higher rate of tax on their foreign profits. But now countries are saying, OK, company A may be playing, paying enough tax globally, but we'd like them to pay more tax in our country. Some people are still caught up in the fair tax debate. That's moved on. It's now a where tax debate. So the OECD ministers are meeting today. Yes. That whole process is due to work its way out by next year. What are... What are the two or three key things to watch from an Irish point of view, the pluses, the minuses, it, as it, that thing works itself? Through? It will be highly, at one level, highly technical, but at the Absolutely. other, but at the other, we have to earn our cross somewhere. <laughs> yes. But at another level, it will be about horse trading and it will be about how the big beasts in the room play it. The US, 
Germany, China, India, the UK. But I think there is an emerging consensus at this point, not say it won't fall out of bed, but some profit has to be recognised in the country of sale. And if you if if that principle is accepted, you are then into a horse trade. And, you know, even the US Treasury are starting to use words like, you know, an appropriate amount or it's not a significant amount. So it will end up being horse trading as to how much ends up in tax in the country of sale. OK, and that's a loss. That well, that's a direct loss. Now, as I say, we've gained and you've seen it in the corporate tax receipts over the last couple of years. Sure. I think we'll continue to gain as more intellectual property comes on shore. But there is a loss potentially on the other side. Net, net, I think still think Ireland will come well out of it. OK, for the next couple of years. For the anyway. next couple of years, yeah. OK, further work. Thank you. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. Last week, the Dublin restaurant Luna announced on social media that it was to cease trading with immediate effect. Just days after winning the Best Customer Service Award at a Ditsy Restaurant Association of Ireland ceremony. In a post on Twitter, the restaurant, which opened in 2015, said it was a very tough decision to make, but unavoidable, despite our best efforts. The closure prompted some of the city's leading restaurateurs to express concern about how development in the city is being managed, with accusations that things have got out of hand. Irish Times consumer affairs correspondent Connor Pope had the story last week and he joins me now along with restaurateur Elaine Murphy and DIT lecturer Martin McAnumara who is also the chair of the Dublin Gastronomy Symposium. Connor Pope, the Luna closure raised some debate about the industry, about planning. Tell us the, a bit of the background to that. Well, I guess one of the things that happened almost immediately after Luna announced that it was closing was an awful lot of restaurateurs in Dublin took to social media to give their tuppence worth and to express a view on what was happening in the industry. And I have to say that there was a very bleak interpretation of what's going on. And one of the things that one of the common threads that was running through an awful lot of the commentary was the fact that there's simply too many restaurants opening in Dublin right now. And I think we're in a scenario whereby an awful lot of shops are closing. And the reason why an awful lot of small shops are closing is because it's really hard to do business as a retailer in the 21st century because you've got a huge amount of competition in the online space. Now, one of the big advantages that a restaurant has is you can't eat online. You actually have to be a physical presence in a physical place to to order the food. So... An awful lot of people, they'll see the small little, for want of a better word, corner shops closing in places like South William Street or on Dawson Street or in, the, in, Dublin, in Dublin's inner city. And they'll think, OK, the shop is closed, so I'll just move a nice little restaurant in there. I'll open it up, I'll make a few bob and mm. we'll all be grand. Shop, um, yep. Or a coffee shop or whatever it might be. And the criticism that's coming uh, out loud and clear is that Dublin City Council have been too relaxed in issuing change of use planning notices uh, for establishments. So maybe you might pick a street like South William Street. Now, there might have been 20 shops on South William Street and 15 restaurants a decade ago. But over th- over time, the shops have closed and now you might have 38 restaurants and, and, and two retailer Sandwich units. Shops. So that's the kind yeah. of thing that's happening. And, and people are saying it's just too hard 
for individual restaurants to, to make money. And one criticism you could have is, or, one, or one argument that you could have is, OK, well, if there's loads of restaurants opening, isn't that brilliant? Because there's loads of choice for consumers and that's going to drive down prices. But that's not the reality of the business. And one of the reasons why is that we are heading very, very quickly back into the pre-Celtic Tiger uh, era where landlords were charging ludicrous rents and asking for absolutely outlandish sums as key money. So before a restaurateur even gets to open their bar- Burrito shop or their coffee shop or their sandwich shop or their high-end restaurant, the landlord is saying, I need 250 grand before I give you the keys. And when we get into a scenario like that, it puts huge financial pressure on individual restaurants. So they might open and there might be loads of fanfare around them, loads of publicity. Everything is great. Six months down the road, they're starting to get into difficulty. And the other thing that restaurateurs are saying that, that has been, uh, the other thing that's proved problematic in recent months has been obviously the uh, the change in the VAT rate from 9% to 13.5%. Now, when well, the that, consumers have paid for that. Well, so consu- absolutely. To some anyway. Yeah, but what 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 they will say is that um, the change came in on the first of January, but it's only in the second quarter of the year when your VAT bills fall due um, that you you find yourself in a position where you have to pay a higher rate of VAT and. Re- re- restaurateurs are saying that that's just eating into their margins and some are saying it's more difficult for them to, to stay alive. Okay, yeah. Elaine Murphy, you run five restaurants in Dublin City. What's your what's your perspective on this? Uh, um, absolutely yes to everything Connor just said there. Okay. Um, I suppose the VAT uh, issue is is one that we all know about and it 100% was an extremely retro- regressive step from the government's mm. point of view to to roll back on that. But I mean... Aside from that, yes, there are too many seats in Dublin, and you know, you know, to us, the the job of civic planners is to make a civic mix of public space and green space and retail and restaurants. And there are too many restaurants. That's true. But I think, to be honest, the big issue is the price of doing business in this country is too high, okay. and you know, that's. Right hiring down hiring people, rents, rates, fat, what? Yes, what, rent, what are the, what are the rents are huge. Rents are huge for, for most people. That's, that's, the, that's the big one. Mm. Um, VAT, as I said, is huge. But, you know, there are, there are so many other hidden costs. You need a license to do everything in the, in the restaurant business. And those, rest, those licenses come at high costs. I mean, the, just to take one example, the external street furniture license uh, cost in Dublin in Ireland is five times that of Paris mm. it's three times that of the UK and I mean in a, in a country where the narrative is about you know uh, open spaces and you know co- creating a convivial and genial atmosphere in the cities mm. plus don't forget people sitting on the streets is, is free policing mm. you know there's no question about it uh, if that's the narrative um, in the background you have the cost of doing that being literally prohibitive so it, that's one cost. You have they've privatised the uh, the licensing of um, our fog, which is our uh, fats, oils, and greases um, inspections. That's a okay. private company that's been privatised. That's another fee. Mm. There's a license for everything, and everything costs more than any other country. I mean, people talk about the prices in Ireland being quite high. I mean, don't forget uh, hospitality is at the front and centre of our biggest export, which is tourism. And uh, people coming to this country, as well as people living in this country, will say the prices in Ireland are higher than everywhere else. But the cost of business is higher in Ireland. So we've got to charge prices, but we're paying for food that is more expensive than every other country. And those producers are also subject to the high cost of doing business. Farmers, our fish 
our vegetables, our meat, everything costs too much to buy, too much to produce. And that's the bottom line. Does that mean margins are continually being squeezed? Continually, being, continually being squeezed, yeah. Mm. I mean, the VAT, uh, Connor's right, you know, it's only really coming, it's only kind of trickling through now mm. in the second half. I suppose half. to pay the devil's advocate on the VAT, it was a special incentive introduced. Maybe it was never going to last forever. Well, it was a special incentive, but it was working. I mean, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 the employment that was created by that, that, that VAT reduction was, was massive and uh, it worked and the industry was becoming buoyant. I mean, the other thing is the cost for people. You know, there's, a, there's another issue in Dublin particularly, which is the dominance of large, uh, one particular but a couple of large restaurant groups which are funded by private equity. Um, uh, I won't go into the details of those, but, you know, sure. we're independent restaurants. The vast majority of restaurants in Ireland are independent restaurants. Mm. Um, I think those those dominant uh, private equity funded restaurant groups they don't need a profit and loss uh, account to run their businesses you know it's it's a property play mm. uh, there's there's a lot of there's a, there are a lot of issues i think coming down the track with those there's going to be a huge purchasing power issue where you know the rest is obvious but um sure. that's an issue that's also an issue okay interesting martin you've looked at the sector in detail at its finances at the VAT issue. What's your perspective on what's happening now? The, I mean, the economy's never been never been stronger, not for in, in recent years anyway. Shouldn't yeah, restaurants be? be I doing suppose well? the fear is the fear is that we're starting to fall uh, into making the same mistakes that happened during the Celtic Tiger. Uh, from a historic perspective, looking at VAT, VAT, VAT has always been an issue. Like the Restaurant Association of Ireland was set up to try and deal with the VAT issue during the eighties. You know, some really high standard restaurants nearly went to the wall and needed actually private backing to save them because of that. You know, uh, and when you think with the recession, that low VAT rate helped the industry to actually blossom helped it not just that but there's a hope ever since you know the 2008 there's been a drive towards the idea about food tourism as well and they're seeing that food tourism because it's not just food tourism but food in tourism because for every tourist that comes here 30 percent of what they spend is on food all right so all of those people coming in so we need to look after those and look after that money and that's all bringing employment it's all bringing revenue and on it and it's wonderful but so we have to be careful about that we, you know the, the goose that, that lay the golden egg sort of thing but equally looking at the mistakes that were happening because during the Celtic Tiger, uh, there was such a shortage of chefs that chefs then started to be promoted before they were ready. Mm. So they were skipping a few steps on the ladder of their training. Mm. So by the time they actually got to sort of levels of sous chef or head chef, they actually didn't have the full training, the full skill set they should have if they'd done a proper training. And which meant that they were put under pressure and they couldn't handle it. And a lot of them then left the industry because they were under too much stress. And I'm not, no disrespect anyone driving taxis or whatever. An awful lot of people went to do different jobs yeah. who could have been career chefs. Sure. But, and I see the same thing happening now, you know, because there's such sort of a demand. But it's sort of like a vicious circle because, as Elaine's saying, the rents, it's not just the rents on the restaurants, but it's the rents on the staff who are trying to actually pay rent for, if you're working in the industry, our Huge students thing, yeah. in, in Cahill Brewer Street, you know I mean, they have to pay their rent. So, you know, they have to do that as well as work, as well as all of this sort of stuff. So it's, it's, it's really quite difficult. Yeah. And the margins are, are, are tight. It's, margins, an, it's an industry where margins are traditionally tight. Margins is that right? were always tight. Yeah. 
the secret there, like I remember there was a there was a colleague of mine nearly 20 years ago did research on this and he reckoned you needed at least a 60-seater restaurant in Dublin to actually survive and then you needed to be turning that twice or tw- two and a half times at your weekends or at your busiest times, you know what I mean? Yeah. Otherwise, it wasn't going to work, you the, know what I mean? The margins are, are way tighter than the public would realise, you know, people coming in and yeah. eating in a restaurant, I think, but, um, you know, the, the very high-profile closure last uh, last week it didn't come as a surprise to most restaurateurs, not specific to the restaurant. The restaurant is run by people not only who know what they're doing, but we're mm. at the top of their game. Mm. You know, one of the best restaurants in Dublin who just sure. picked up a prestigious award. Mm. But, you know, that closure did not surprise any restaurateurs that I spoke to. And that's because we're, we are living, you know, we, we are living hand to mouth almost in mm. the restaurant business. You know, you're, you're very close to any day, everything, everything imploding. And, and that probably comes as a, as a surprise to a lot of people. But in a way, it's it's an inevitable part of the business that you're in. I mean, if you yeah. and, and I'm sure you agree with this, restaurateurs are risk takers. Yeah. You know, th- there's no sure thing when it co- comes to opening a restaurant. So the very act of opening a restaurant, you're taking a gamble. Yes. And an awful lot of the time, that gamble doesn't come good. Yeah. So there are always going to be high profile closures in, yeah. in any restaurant business in this yeah. country. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I do think you're right. I think, you know, I think the government made a mistake when it came to restoring the VAT rate to 13.5% because tourism is incredibly important to us and Lord knows we've seen how generous we are when it comes to big corporations or the tech industry and we are literally falling over over ourselves to give them cash incentives and incentives in terms of tax breaks yet this yet the the, the tourism industry is more important than those and we went back to we went back to the higher rate and that was a big mistake and one of the nice things that you've seen in Ireland over the last 10 or 15 years has been the dramatic improvement in the quality of the restaurants out there I mean, if you'd said to people 20 years ago that you could come to Ireland and have great food, they would have looked at you and laughed because Ireland did not have that reputation. Yet when you talk to tourists who come to this country now, they all sing the praises of Irish restaurants, or at least a lot of the time. And Borbia and Falcha Ireland and Tourism Ireland have worked so hard Mm. at improving the reputation of and improving the quality of the food that's available in Irish restaurants. And the service. And the service. It's all getting better. And it would be a great shame to see it all fall apart as a result of bad planning decisions. Now, Dublin City Council, in their defence, will say that they refuse an awful lot of change of use applications that are made. And they will say, listen, we understand that there needs to be a proper mix of retail, of coffee shops, of high-end restaurants, of mid-range restaurants, of green spaces. But an awful lot of the time, the, the, the appeals or the, the, the planning applications or the change of use applications that are rejected are then pushed on to on board Planola, our, our appeals bodies, who then grant them. Because there is this overly simplistic view in some quarters. And if you speak to people in the restaurant tra- trade, they'll say the council mm. and the planning bodies are run by engineers and they're run by architects. They're not run by people who understand how retail or how food works. So they just say, oh, listen, more restaurants, more restaurants are a good thing. But the bottom line is that if, if, if there's more restaurants, there'll be more restaurant closures, good restaurants will close and that'll put pressure on the other restaurants and ultimately we'll all end up losing. How do you, how do you strike the balance, Elaine? I mean, more restaurants are good for the consumer, uh, as Connor said. As, well, can be good. As Connor said, there's been a great explosion of choice in recent years. Yeah, uh, competition up to a point is good, but 
And the how, how do you draw the line? I mean, the balance is hard to strike in, in, in lots of ways. I was thinking today earlier on about, I was pa- walking up the quays and I was passing lots of little new places and I was thinking, mm. it's wonderful that there's accessibility for new operators. Yeah. However, there's a couple of things that happen. Sometimes you have new operators who don't know what pricing structure is about and they'll come in at very low prices and then you'll get people saying, well, they're charging this price for you know X, Y, or Z without paying any attention to provenance or the conditions of the people who are making their food or the conditions of the animals that went into the meat or, you know, um, and they won't last. So you're seeing an awful lot of planning applications being granted um, and the restaurants are closing. Um, Now, that sounds like I would like the place to be dominated by, you know, old, like long term operators who know know what they're doing. People in the industry are always trying to keep other people out. Yeah, no. And I think what's the expression? A raising tide raises all boats. I mean, I think that's true Mm. to a certain extent. But I mean, the job of civic planners is to plan. I mean, and that really is about uh, balance and about mix and about it. And it's about green space and it's about outside space and it's about creativity and it's about imagination. I mean, you know, there's another element to this, which is the lack of imagination in Dublin City Council occasionally around what is considered, you know, heritage or what is considered uh, appropriate art. Um, where you know, if Victorian buildings seem to be the only thing that is is seen as as preservable, mm. um, when you have some beautiful street art and you have some beautiful murals and you have some beautiful neon, which Dum City Council don't like, by the way. Mm. So you have some incredible artists doing incredible work in neon. So there's a wider conversation about planning, um, but I think the balance is about having a mix of, of planners mm. as well as planning. As Connor said, like it can be dominated by people who are not close to the industry. I mean, it always made me laugh in the restaurant business. I mean, we have 165 staff. Um, the amount of times I've heard a news piece about tech employing uh, 10 people, mm. you know, a, a news piece on the radio. Sure. And uh, it seems like hospitality really gets left behind with the number of uh, jobs mm. that they've created. And as I said, it really, it's front and centre to tourism. And we have the, the shadow of Brexit looming. Sure. Um, so I think more support for that restaurant but isn't that, that one of the issues that we have actually in that and one of the things that makes Ireland different from from France or from Spain or from Italy is that in those countries working in a restaurant for many people is seen as a career it's a long term viable career that you will see people doing from their 20s until their 70s in Ireland working in a restaurant is generally speaking viewed as being a very transient job that yeah. you'll do as a student and then you'll grow up and you'll do a proper job yeah. and that's maybe why the jobs that are, are created in the restaurant sector aren't as highly regarded as jobs that are created in the tech sector. There's also a false you know, perception out there because you know, how often have you heard this thing that, you know, what was it, nine out of every ten restaurants close within the first year, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I've had um, a PhD student of mine do, you know, crunch the numbers, went into the CSO, mm-hmm. got the numbers and looked at it over eight years. And the percentage that, of restaurants that actually fail in the first year is actually 15%. Right. That's very different. And it's not much higher than any other normal business. Sure. It's actually lower than some businesses and a little bit higher than others. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then even you go to three years and five years. And once you manage to get to five years, it really reduces dramatically because, you've, you know, it's like any business. There's the, the thing they call the uh, oh, what's it? This sort of liability of newness in any new business. It's hard to actually get your once you get your feet in under the table and you, you know what you're doing for a few years, then you build up a customer base. And we need to realize that. But unfortunately, these sort of, even for people who want to open restaurants, quite often bank managers turn around, oh, sure, that's going to fail, sort of thing, without even thinking, without having the proper research done. 
he's equally looking at sort of what are the critical success factors for independent Irish restaurants and he's identifying all of these factors that's required to make a place successful. And it's very, very interesting what he's coming up with, you know what I mean? And one of the key things he's looking at is actually to have support as in have someone, either a professional friend or someone that you can bounce ideas off. And this can be true in all sorts of businesses as well. Kind you know of a mentor. I mean? yeah, a mentor, mentor yeah. but yeah. someone you can be, a critical friend nearly, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's really, yeah. really important because it is a stressful job. And if you just have someone you can just bounce off, yeah. just even vent for a little while, then you can go back and you're grand again. You well, know? I mean, Connor's right. You know, it, it traditionally is not an industry that's considered, that's, you know, a respectable career choice. Mm. You know, it tends to be drifters and that. it tends yeah. to be transient yeah. work or students. Uh, I started of, by... Industry to some extent, should it do more to bring people on? I I think this is a this is a this is a big puzzle. So I mean, mm. part of the reason is it's it's generally low paid, particularly front of house. Mm. The margins are tight though. So you know, again, you don't you have very little training. You know the you know with Anco and all the internships being cut away, the the people who are actually being professionally trained are have reduced dramatically. There is no space for training uh, when you have such tight margins. So, mm. you know, you can't put a layer of people in and training. Generally, people are thrown in. Yeah, the other problem there is that actually there's been a demand, again, going back to the CSO, Mary Farrell did research and found out that there's actually 25% more chefs working in Ireland today than there was five years ago. Wow. So even though we're talking about a huge shortage of chefs, mm. we're also talking about huge demand for chefs. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's really, I mean, and this is where research I think is really important, that we actually have solid figures yeah. so that we're not just picking things out and thinking that this is a problem like that. Everything was great years ago. Yeah. Demand, every, as you say, every second place now, every spar, everything, everyone has a chef nearly working yeah. at every pub, every cafe, yeah. whereas yeah. it used to be restaurants or hotels. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. Are, what are the two or three things, Martin, from a policy point of view, if you were to, if you were the minister, what... What are the two, three things that the government could actually do to help to help the sector? Now, obviously, it's it's hit by rising costs. Margins are tight. We, we agree it's very important for tourism. What what should we be doing? Well, I think training is one thing because I think one of the key things that 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 lost and quite a number of years ago is, and we used to have nineteen nineteen sixty three cert was set up to sort of train for the hotel and the tourism industry. The nineteen seventy four it also included the whole catering industry. Yeah. So people used to be actually paid and trained and given grants and looked after so that we had an industry and there used to be in winter time and stuff like the hotels that were seasonal yeah. like down in Killarney and down in Ross Lair and all they were training places for yeah. employ for, yeah. for, for, for staff yeah. you know for the what you call the hospitality industry you know that would help hugely mm. you know uh, Industry has to do its bit as well because industry has to also invest in its staff. You know, and industry have to invest in actually giving time. But we're talking about the government here. The government need to invest in training. They need to also look at the idea about taxation. But they also need to look at the, the, all of these, what we call the hidden costs, as yeah. we're saying about independent people checking your fats and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The rates, all of these hidden costs, it's nearly a tax on business. Like you'd nearly be mad to open a business because all the hidden costs, like it looks like we're a low tax economy, yeah. but there's all these hidden costs, which really, really tighten your, you know, your, I think the profit margin in restaurants is something like 3%, 3 to okay. 5%, if that, you know what I mean? And so it's very, very so tight. It doesn't, make, doesn't take much to swing that into the red. It, yeah, exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't. And I mean, Elaine, I, from your I, point of view, what are the what are the what are the policy things? What are the, the look, two I, or three things? Agreed on that. You know, the VAT. The, the VAT is a very simple, easy first mm. step. But as I said about the uh, external street furniture, that's one. You know, um, the the various licensing costs, um, the prohibitive costs of all those. But the other thing is housing in Ireland is. 
obviously an issue, but it's a huge issue for us. We're at for people for rents for their ability to to earn what they earn and and pay for their rent. I mean that that's a huge. If there's one thing that people are running businesses are saying, it's yeah all kinds of businesses. It's yeah, that. that's yeah. absolutely huge. I mean the, to bring down the cost of doing business in this country, that's that would be the biggest thing. Yeah. Martin, are we, as you say, we're, are we in danger of going back to the future in terms of we became, we became a high cost economy and uh, for that reason and for a few other reasons we paid the price. Are we, are we heading back there again? Yeah, well, I think we need to be just careful is that we don't sort of uh, throw the baby out with the bad water because actually what we have here at the moment is I've predicted that Ireland is going to be, within the next five, ten years, is going to be one of the top sort of culinary destinations in the world. The standard of food in this country has risen dramatically. Absolutely. You know what I mean? We have, I say, I'm sure just after opening, like the fact that actually even that a chef from England and, and his uh, front of house partner from Denmark or something are coming over to Ireland. And the reason is because they've identified the brilliant produce we have, the all that sort of stuff. You know, the talent in Ireland alone is wonderful. And uh, hospitality is something we do. Abs- it's in our blood here. You know, we're just natural at it. So enable us to do it and actually empower us to do it and actually celebrate it. You know, and I think if we do that, we'll, do, we'll, we'll go a long way. On that positive note, uh, we'll end. Thank you, Elaine, Martine and Connor. OK, that's all we've time for this week. Thanks to all our guests. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cliff Taylor. Thank you for listening.